Hello and welcome to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. It's me, I'm your host, a multicultural mama, wife, and leader. And here is where we amplify the stories of multicultural women who are unraveling from tradition to make the switch in work, well-being, and winning. I made the switch. Former professional actor turned lawyer turned education executive, and I'm not done yet. Join in on the conversation and learn how you can unravel from your stuff to make the switch, disrupt balance, and win. In today's episode, we are talking to Christy Norman. Christy is a Japanese American sommelier and nonprofit owner who immigrated to the United States in first grade. And since then, she has learned to navigate the expectations of traditional Japanese culture. As a wine educator and sommelier, she also maneuvers an age-old industry where many of the people don't look like her. In this episode, Christy shares why it's important to be rooted in your why and how you can become your very own wine expert. Hey, Disrupting Balance listeners. Are you interested in becoming your very own wine expert? Well, guess what? Christy Norman and the team at the online wine course have extended a special discount for Disrupting Balance listeners. That's right, you get 50% off of her regular wine course. You go to www.theonlinewinecourse.com, click on the regular course, and enter promo code Disrupting Balance and get 50% off. Guess what? I've done it myself and I'm already in the course. It's amazing. You don't want to miss it. That's www dot the online wine course dot com click on the regular course enter promo code disrupting balance and receive your 50% off hope you enjoy all right so hello and welcome everybody back to the disrupting balance podcast I am so glad you're joining me today it's a new season it's a new year and we're excited about all of our wonderful guests that we have in store and today in the disrupting balance guest chair we have Christy Norman how are you Christy I am doing so well thanks so much for having me yeah, I'm so glad you're here. Um, I can't wait for folks to hear your exciting story and some of the unique aspects of your journey. It's going to be a great, great, great discussion. So let's jump right in and start with what is your story? I had psoriasis when I was really young. Um, I It covered about 70% of my body. I lost a significant amount of weight. I was an opera singer, uh, I rode motorcycles, and then I became a sommelier. Um, when I turned 21, I actually passed my first and second level sommelier exam and I got hired at Spago Beverly Hills. It's Wolfgang Puck's flagship restaurant. We had 20,000 bottles and I was one of four sommeliers um, to do that, <laughs> um, to manage a list that large. It's one of the biggest in the country, if not the world. And I created an online wine course for beginners because I felt like getting into wine was so difficult and there were so many challenges. Um, I excelled in social media, which was kind of a strange thing 
for um, professionals, there was always this kind of, um, there was, there was a difference between being a professional and being an influencer. And I was kind of one of the first hybrids of that. And so I challenged a lot of people's preconceived notions. I'm a young Asian female and <laughs> I was born in Japan. So there was a lot about me that people were skeptical of. Um, and then in the pandemic, when the pandemic hit, uh, a master sommelier and I created a foundation to provide financial relief to wine professionals in need. And we've raised, as of today, $950,000 in the last nine months. Just about. Mm -hmm. That's amazing. So let's, okay, so let's take it back a bit. Um, you said you were born in Japan. Let's talk a little bit about your family background and kind of the cultural component being born in Japan, what that was like, and then coming here. Let's walk us through that. Well, being from Japan, um, it's a complete culture shock, right? I mean, everyone is so incredibly organized there. Um, there's so much respect for others. Um, you're very quiet. Um, women are supposed to be very quiet and polite. And I think being polite was more important than speaking your mind or doing the right thing. And so, and also being intimate with people too. I, I didn't realize until I was much older that looking people in the eye for extended periods of time made me extremely uncomfortable because in Japan, like, and my mom is full Japanese. I did a, you know, a ancestry test and I'm 49.4% Japanese. So there's, you know, um, we don't look at each other in the train. You might be near, you know, 200 people, but you don't look at people. It's not like accepted, you know? And although women are respected professionally in Japan, you can have a very great career domestically, so socially, um, you're still less than. And that's why my parents actually moved me here um, to start first grade in America because they wanted me to have a normal education and a normal life because here there's going to be Asian kids and black kids and Mexican kids or whatever, you know, like there's everybody. Mm -hmm. um, and in Japan, I would have been like a celebrity slash weirdo, right? It was either one or the other because I'm mixed, I'm half, and I'm very clearly not full Japanese. I have kind of curlier hair. Um, it's like wavy. And even that, you know, um, when my mom was a kid, um, she had really wavy hair and her mom would braid her hair every single day. And actually in fifth grade, my mom said, no, you're not gonna braid my hair anymore to my grandma. And she went to school and the literally the, the principal like took her, her into the bathroom and put her head under the sink and was like, oh, it's not a perm because she had <sighs> wavy hair and they called her seaweed head. And so she was always really uncomfortable because she stuck out, you know, and um, she was an exchange student to the US actually, which is, um, it makes sense because like I'm a very strong-willed person and I definitely didn't, didn't fit into that mold and my mom didn't really either. Um, but they wanted me to be in Japan um, when I was younger, but you know, as an adult, they wanted me to be here because of the opportunity and my ability to, to actually be myself here fully. Mm. So even though you came in first grade, did you find that there were some residual effects on being born and I guess rooted in that environment in the Japanese environment? 
Did you feel like you carried some of that with you in your day to day? Absolutely. Yeah. And my mom is very, um, she's not like traditional Japanese in the way that you might think um, in terms of like the way that she ran the house or the things that she bought. It really wasn't that. It's not like she was always making traditional Asian um, dishes. It was more about the level of respect for others. Um, the the just the mentality of you put others before yourself. I think it was very deeply ingrained in me from a very young age. Like even, you know, at uh, my grandma, who's like 80 years old now, you know, the the day that um, the new train card system came out, like she was on board with it. And it's like, people are just really flexible and they just do the thing that is best for the group and there's no questions. And, and I've always been that way too. I've always been so deeply passionate about efficiency. And I think that that was just something that um, we really cared about. And also, you know, excelling in things, you know, my uncles, um, you know, both worked very, very hard to get into great schools and, you know, they studied very hard and they're very um, motivated people. And um, I got a brain scan done last year at this program called 40 Years of Zen. And mm -hmm. they told me that my particular like brain pattern um, is very, uh, it's the, the mark, the signature mark of a super highly motivated person. Mm -hmm. Not that I'm more intelligent, but mm -hmm. that I just am wired that way. Mm -hmm. And um, I think a lot of Japanese people probably have that. <laughs> mm -hmm. So I wonder then, like when I think about efficiency, I think about there is this innate need to make sure things are running and functioning um, at uh, on some consistent level or pace. So you can do what you need to do and there's a level of expectation in the process, right? But you have a very unique career path. Becoming a sommelier, entering the industry, creating a foundation, um, creating an online course. And I would think that those roles would really put that need to be efficient to the test. So my question is, how do you balance this unique career path, your need for efficiency, but also kind of that cultural component of making sure you're being respectful, making sure you're kind of not too much in the foreground, but in the background. How did you balance all that? Um, I think doing a lot of personal development work in terms of um, really looking at my emotional health, things that happened to me when I was a kid, like how having psoriasis affected me as a human being, um, what's coming up for me and being honest with myself and what's getting in the way. Um, and knowing that Although there, you know, might be some people who don't like the way that I do things, there's going to be people that do. Um, and hearing me speak is um, powerful for some people, especially a lot of young Asian women in my industry to see somebody who's now very successful in the wine industry and, and having seen my journey and who I am, um, it is really empowering for a lot of people, you know, they tell me. And so I guess just being rooted in my why is the most important mm -hmm. thing um, because I always, I always start with my vision and then mm -hmm. I work backwards. And so I have my vision of, you know, making wine more accessible for mm -hmm. everyone and making it fun and, you know, um, solving this 
problem and this disconnect. And there's a lot of different ways to do that. Um, I'm just doing one of the ways mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and understanding that every single thing that I'm doing is genuinely. And I know that like, it's to help people. It's to help people in some way. Um, and when I get off of myself, I don't worry that that it's about me anymore because it's not. I'm completely focused on how I can be of service. Mm-hmm. Does wow. that make sense? Yeah, that does make sense. So then let's talk about shifting the industry perspective because you mentioned that you're this hybrid of um, a professional and a professional influencer, a professional and an influencer. That's the hybrid, correct? Yes. And so I can imagine though, when you're piercing some type of veil, whatever that veil is, you had to deal with a lot. Oh yeah. Whether it was negativity, the challenges, and just having to prove that you deserved uh, a seat at that table. So let's talk about how, what it was like when you started to shift that perception and those experiences. Uh, About four years ago, I started um, a YouTube series. It's still up now. You can watch them. They're funny. Um, They're called Adulting with Alcohol. And it was my attempt, you know, in three to five minutes, it was to teach a lesson about wine. And it was a fusion of wine education and comedy. And they were much more like crude um, and not crude, like as in bad, but just like low quality, like not uh, expensive to make, um, but they were really fun and, and a lot of people resonated with it, but I was also doing something that was entertainment based in an industry that really rejected it. And it's funny because I was actually too young and I was too inexperienced in the industry to even understand like that, that was going to put a target on my head. I had no idea. I just entered the industry and I was just like, oh, well, I want to make these cute videos and they were shared and I'd have like 20,000 views on them. And, um, unfortunately, or fortunately, I don't know, but it made me the center of a lot of attention. You know, people would <clears throat> uh, friend request me just so that they could see my stuff and share it into private Facebook groups. They would screenshot things on my private Instagram stories and share them with the world. And I also did a bikini competition when I was 21, right when I got hired at Spago. And so people would slut shame me, even though I was doing bodybuilding, wow. like it was legitimately like aesthetics and bodybuilding. And I, you know, dieted for 26 weeks for my first show and the level of commitment that I showed, but all that the industry or some people in the industry saw was a woman showing her body and how dare she, how Mm -hmm. dare she be a professional and also be showing her body. So it was like, and and I was also doing something different. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and I wasn't white, which mm-hmm. <laughs> also, and, and honestly, there's been, you know, a lot of people that I know that said, Hey, you know, if I, as a white man, if I did the same videos that you were doing, I don't think anybody would have bad an eye. They would have said, Oh, good for, good for him. Yep. Yep. Um, but that's just being a woman. And, and I hope that I've blazed a path for other women. I think I have, and I support other women that are doing different things Mm -hmm. um because we all that's the thing like we all speak to our own audience we all um we only speak to our own people so there's no competition for me i'm like somebody else wants to have a beginner wine course amazing you're going to speak to a whole different crowd and like we all get to work together and do it together because it's not just like a task that i can by myself tackle Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and yeah i think it's hard for people who are used to a kind of a traditional way of doing things to change 
especially the industry as you explained it to me. So let's talk about the culture of the wine industry. Like what is the general makeup of the wine industry and why did you kind of um, call it somewhat of, or, or describe it as a toxic culture in some respects? Well, um, before, it's very interesting, uh, before really the pandemic, um, the wine industry were people who were, you know, certified or advanced sommeliers, you know, you had to kind of conform to these certain certification programs um, Mm -hmm. that are very difficult to pass in which you need mentorship. And I actually wrote a big dissertation um, in, on VinePair about transparency in these certification programs and essentially how they create an environment where racism, um, where you know, just discrimination of all different types exists because it was all down to personal preference and who's gonna help you to, to pass, right? If, if the certification body doesn't provide any tangible study materials, then you have to rely on your network, right? So it was like a very, it was like gatekeeping at every level. And a lot of people were upset with the certification program, but I said, you know, it starts from the bottom. And so that's why, you know, years ago, now three years ago, I started a tasting group um, at my restaurant and we've had now uh, 400 sommeliers, a hundred miles North and South attend our events. Right. And I wanted to make sure it was, you know, it was, uh, low cost because when I was doing it back in the day, it would I would have to pay eighty dollars a week to be able to join these elite groups, wow. and so I was making it half the cost. Now it's just pay what you can, literally. Okay, and so before the wine industry was made up of mostly all white men, and um, you know some strong females that like pushed their way up, um, and actually there was a very toxic environment online. All of the sommelier groups that I had ever been a part of were just complaining groups. Um, When I'd leave the groups, then it was like, then I was a target, Mm -hmm. even though I would leave quietly, you know, then it was like, um, they would, they would bash influencers. um, These women who, you know, maybe they work in a, a, a different field, but they're sharing their love of wine and they're, you know, doing paid sponsorships and stuff like that. And people would just drag them for like misinformation or whatever, um, because in our world, being the most um, being the most knowledgeable was the most important thing. It was like you know, mm. it didn't matter what you were contributing to society as a whole. All that mattered is how fast you can rattle off flashcard answers. And fortunately, with the pandemic and the work that I've been doing for a long time, you know, is bringing in um, people that that feel like they're adjacent to the wine industry right um there's so many people that have been part of my group and i actually now i do a 45 minute introduction call with them every new person that wants to join and i hear about them and what they do and it's so interesting because most people would say oh well i'm not really in the wine industry and i'm like but you have certifications in two different programs but you're what right and so you know I, i now with the pandemic now that the certification body um, has kind of been shown to to be an effective and a gatekeeper and stuff like that. Now people are are seeing and taking ownership and saying, this is, I'm the wine industry. You know, it's gotten much bigger because of this, um, the failures that they have had. You know, mm-hmm. it's actually been very positive, I think, because I'm trying to shift like our mission in terms of what being a wine professional is. And it doesn't matter Um, it doesn't matter how much, you know, if you're not sharing it effectively, if you're not, you know, sharing with the community. So for our listeners, just to 
provide context. Explain what the, the whole thing around having the tasting. You talked about this tasting group you started. It's up to 400 people. Take us through the process of why it's important, what this tasting group represents and what it means for the folks that are involved. Got it. So for our advanced sommelier exams, um, we have a test and it one, one portion is tasting. And so you walk into a room and there's six wines on the table that are pre-poured, three whites and three reds. And you have 25 minutes, so four minutes and 10 seconds per wine to deduce verbally what the wine is, where it's from, and how old it is. So you have to say, this is a Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa Valley, you know, 2013 high quality producer, right? For every wine. And so training to do that takes years. Um, I have been uh, fortunately a part of a very advanced group when I was very young in my career. I wasn't even a second level, but I was like with near masters, right? Mm -hmm. And so I was in this very elite, elite circle of people, but it was interesting because um, you need to be part of a group like that in order to progress, right? Through all the levels there, you have to taste at multiple levels of testing. Um, but the thing is that like, they didn't necessarily want to help raise, there was never a program to like help new people go up. So what happens is that based on your network of friends, whoever decides and lets you be in their tasting group, uh, that mm -hmm. is kind of what is is whole, is your limit of education so like if you if you're with people of your same level it's like the blind leading the blind right, right so you want somebody right. that's higher than you but how do you get that person to help right. You, right and so that's why it's significant and it literally took me about three years to be proficient at this and it just you must keep tasting and you have to keep tasting with people better than you and so that's why when I got to Spago I did something that had never been done before um, and it was different because I said you know um, I demanded people be on time, be their word, because a lot of times people were late and it would take forever yeah. to start. But then second, I wanted it to be low cost or free. And I wanted to be able to vet all of the wine. So I was actually purchasing the wines at cost um, from my friends and restaurants and stuff like that and vetting them with professionals that I knew, knew what they were doing, right? Because you can't just choose any wine for the the fake exams, right? You have to choose certain things that are typical yeah. that have certain characteristics, right? And so you need a lot of support. So, you know, I made it like $40 and some weeks I won, some weeks I lost, but overall at the end of the month, it usually worked out. Mm -hmm. And I would have 10 to 12 people every single week with one bottle of wine each, right? So we'd have six bottles, but that would be able to educate 15 people sometimes, wow. whereas in a small group, you might have six to eight people and you'd have a ton of waste. And, you know, it's like, well, there's extra wine here. So I structured it in a way where I had the advanced people come earlier, they would grade each other. And then at the end, there would be, um, um, the, you know, they were, there would be a group of people who I was raising up. Right. And so and once a month we would do master classes. So I would give opportunities to, um, you know, some producer or wine region or whatever to show their wines. We had some of the most famous people in the country, winemakers come and teach a class for us. And it, you know, they, everyone would pay $20 and it would contribute to the photographer and to a gift to the presenter, but mm -hmm. that was it. You know, we, I never made money from it. It was always just like, that's, you know, and, and, the biggest thing was that usually it would just be this elite thing, right? Like you only mm -hmm. let certain people in. My strategy was to let everyone in, 
that Mm -hmm. had a wine certification. So people that were in sales and distribution and also restaurant floor sommeliers and wine directors. Mm -hmm. And the, the reason is like, wine directors and buyers feel like, oh, these salespeople, they're going to want something from me or whatever. Right. And you think that, oh, it'll deter them. No, I was just like, you know, if you want to learn, you can come. And honestly, the people who are just there to network or something, they fall off really fast because it's not a networking place. Correct. And so what happened ironically was all of these reps that I allowed in, um, contrary to the advice that I was given, they're like, oh, you shouldn't help those people. They're just reps, whatever. Right. And they were actually the ones that scouted all the wine directors and psalms and they said hey there's a group you should join right because they know everybody they go to all the restaurants and it wasn't my intention but that's just what happened um and then also in the pandemic when we transitioned virtually i did it as pay what you can and all of the reps and salespeople were the ones that still had jobs and so they were helping pay you know they're bringing wines to help you know pad our our wine budgets and stuff like that and it's all we're a symbiotic ecosystem and yeah. that's really what I'm trying to get people to see. So that was a long-winded answer to your question. <laughs> no, that's that's amazing. It really puts it in context. So I'm wondering, like, I mean, when you were a kid, what did you think you wanted to be? I mean, you know, and then take us into how you actually ended up, you know, getting into wine. Well, I was, uh, I wanted to be an opera singer because that's what I was naturally good at. Mm-hmm. Um, I my whole family said that I should be an opera singer. And then they found a note on my vocal cord when I was like 20 or 19, um, which is like uh, basically something where if you keep singing, it'll burst like Julie Andrews, how she kind of like lost her voice. And they said that eventually that will happen. It was like placed in a very particular area that was like dangerous basically. Um, And I didn't really want to sing. So it wasn't like a sad thing for me. It was like, you know, as an opera singer, you are competing with people all around the world. And actually I wasn't very good at remembering lyrics sometimes when I would get nervous and stuff. Mm -hmm. And turns out that brain scan that I got, um, my Broca's area, which is the part of the brain that recalls information verbally is actually damaged. Uh, And it makes sense because yeah, I I was in an accident where I hit my head and I guess that was part of the reason. So it just wasn't a good fit for me. But, um, you know, I was waiting tables and I was, um, I, I loved it. I, I loved being with people and um, I wanted to work at the fancy steakhouse in town and I found out that the GM liked wine. And so I had no wine experience whatsoever, but, and I got hired there as a barback. So I would work at this barbecue house as a server during the day. And, and it was like a very high volume place, very busy. And then at night I would be a bar back at the steakhouse. And so I told them that I wanted to be the best server they ever had, but they're like, you don't have any fine dining knowledge. Well, I learned everything about the menu, everything about the food. And then I started learning about wine and the GM noticed because he was like, oh, you know, uh, nobody else knows about wine here and I love wine. And so he wanted to help me. And I actually, I, I used it as leverage. I said, if I pass my level one Psalm exam, will you make me a server full time? And they said, yes. And, um, and then by that time I was like, oh, well, I really like this. And I kept going. I was like a manager, like acting AGM, opening a different location wow. uh, the week of my second exam. And I, at the soft opening that we had, somebody walked in and they happened to be an advanced Psalm. And I got introduced to them and they said, let me help you. And Mm -hmm. without his specific coaching and knowledge, I never would have passed my certified exam, the second level. 
And wow. it was the craziest coincidence because I thought about canceling the exam because it was such a crazy week, like opening a restaurant, but I didn't. And I did end up passing. Um, and I always remember him. Um, his name's Sean Privat. And, you know, if he hadn't done that for me, that's yeah. why I do it for everybody. You know, I've given probably a hundred service practicals in the last three years. Like, I mean, I helped a lot of people pass their exams of all different types, you know, um, but it's, it's about sharing the knowledge and helping out where you can creating access. Um, yeah. That was another thing um, in order to get the higher level exams uh, before you had to have a master's recommendation. Um, and the master saw him, there's only like 250. Well, they all came to my restaurant to eat dinner. So I knew so many of them, but I just didn't think it was fair that nobody else did. Right. And so that's why I would bring them as mentors. That was the original reason for it. It was for to create access for other people and say, oh yeah, I was at your tasting at Christie's. Do you remember me? Can I have a recommendation? And they'd be happy to, right? Mm -hmm. But if there's somebody that's just cold emailing them, that's different. Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you, I mean, I hear a lot of things in your story outside of your drive, determination, um, ability to, I guess, decide that you want to do something and actually do it. But I also hear a component about you being a connector and bringing people together. Like that seems to be a part of the drive. Where do you think that comes from knowing your cultural background and kind of the whole thing you laid out in the beginning with women and the expectations, where do you think that comes from? Your, well, your desire to connect? Well, I did this leadership program and we played a game one time and there were 60 people on our team, six zero. Um, and we had to get like 250 items in two hours and they weren't like regular items. It was like a 1957 Chevy hubcap. It was like, wow. <laughs> like random stuff, right? And it was like a Mickey Mouse figurine or something, right? And it was crazy. And I took the lead on that. Um, and I stepped up and I, you know, we read off everything. And within two and a half hours, everyone was back and we had almost every single item on the list. It was bizarre. And that was a moment to me where I woke up and I was like, oh my God, you know, with like, I think about how much, uh, how many people are in my network. And then I think about how many people are in other people's networks, right. right? And it's just like, when you bring people together, one, it's like magic and like people can get the things that they need and request support and stuff like that. Um, but also it's just fun. Like I love getting people together and creating that magic and it strengthens our, our relationships always, you know, mm -hmm. actually I do it with my girlfriends all the time. Like if I, if I meet a new girlfriend and I'll just invite her to hang out with me, but I'll invite everybody to just hang out with me and they won't know, I won't tell them. And then, you know, then they're all friends and it actually makes everybody, it makes everyone stronger. Everyone yeah. has, and I believe in creating win-wins. Yeah. So it doesn't take away from me to connect people. I think it is um, pretty remarkable that you have, because I think that's a skill set, right? Um, people can make friends and be social, but the ability to lead in creating connections is a certain skill set and a certain comfortability that's required to do that. And I think it's perfect for you in this type of industry, which I'm assuming is kind of a people person connector type industry in general. Can I share something? Um, yeah. So actually, um, when I decided to transition tasting group virtually, you know, I was doing everything by myself for about 25 weeks. And then I said, okay, like I got a handle on this now. So I divided it into four roles and mm -hmm. I, 
got tasting group captains, right? And so there's two captains and they each choose a co-captain with them. And um, every week we have a weekly meeting because I wanted them to be in front of the people because I was like, it's not fair. Like, not only do I need some mental space to keep this going and like actually be self-sustaining, but also, um, you know, they get, they've been putting in work and helping out and volunteering for years. People should know who they are. Mm-hmm. And so every week I actually gave them a stretch and I called a stretch and it was like their own personal declaration. And they started at the beginning of November and the first few weeks they were just confused and they were, you know, they made a declaration of how many people they were going to reach out to for no reason. It's just to connect. Right. Okay. And, and, you know, how many people are, are they going to chat with and, we talked about how that went and stuff. And, and one of the, the girls at one point was like, you know, why are we doing this? Is this to like recruit people? Like what, what's the point? And I was like, no, this is, this is for you. This okay. is the magic secret sauce. And now mm-hmm. it's like fast forward two months and now they get it. And it's like, you wow. know, it's now they get it. And actually I, I do stretches for myself all the time. I'll say, you know, let me reach out to all 166 people in my tasting group by the end of this week. Uh-huh. You know, how can I do that? Because you miss so much. You miss so much life. Um, so a stretch, tell me a stretch is this actual setting a kind of this goal to do yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's, um, it's, it's like a rubber band, you know, like if you imagine a rubber band and you stretch to a particular yep. goal, you yep. might not meet the goal, but when you snap back, it might be a little bit bigger than it used yep. to be. Yep. And you, you know, your, your comfortability just gets bigger. And, and I find too, that in encouraging people to connect with others, Um, a lot like things might come up for them. And I believe how you do anything is how you do everything. So it's funny because like, you know, the, the certain reservations and stuff that come up for certain people, um, that's, what's holding them back in a lot of areas of their life. Um, and it's about really facing those. And, and also it's fun because it's like in an environment of no risk, you know, you're not asking somebody to be, um, your investor, you know, you're not convincing somebody to like buy your business. Right. You're all you're doing is saying hello. And if that's a problem for you, then what's up with that? Right. Mm-hmm. And like, that's when we can actually have some exploration. What mm-hmm. is going on. Yeah. Well, honestly, um, you know, master Psalms, um, that, you know, there's so few of them in the United States and they always get paid a lot. And mm-hmm. a lot of them take jobs that are like, you know, that, that don't, necessarily require using all their knowledge right like brands will will hire these master psalms but it's for their relationships it's for Mm. their ability to get in the door Mm -hmm. you know all of these people Mm -hmm. and you are a master Mm -hmm. psalm that's what they're getting paid for you know what i mean and so um you know making sure that every single relationship that i have is in check because you know you never know who's throwing your name in the hat or who's saying whatever. And, and, you know, it's been four or five years of me just building and having a good attitude and, and keeping my commitments and um, being a friend. And, you know, the, that's kind of what has created a lot of my success. Now, this wasn't overnight. It's not like I created a course and, and I, and I did this, it was because a lot of people, um, well, I listened to a lot of people um, and I respected a lot of people. Yeah, I find it interesting, like as you talk about the industry and how closely or how similar it is to just other industries in general, because if you have the soft skills component, I think in any industry, it can take you far. It's that ability to connect to people, bring people together, to stretch. Um, And I think 
that's a lot of what's missing in general with people who want to find that success. But like you said, people really have to tap into kind of what they want and to make that work for themselves. So that's, that's pretty, pretty interesting. So what I want to do now is talk more about this wine course, because I'm curious. I mean, I don't want to be a sommelier, but I like wine. And, you know, I've always wanted to understand more about wine, just kind of on a little surface level, beginner, that's all. Um, So talk to the listeners about the course. What could they expect? How long is it? Like, tell us a little bit about that. Um, Well, the online wine course um, was essentially it's a driver's training video for wine. So imagine like going through driver's ed, how you have videos and quizzes, and then you take an exam at the end. That's really what it is. And I wanted to make it fun and engaging. So all of the videos are of me, you know, we shot it in like a movie quality thing. Um, And it takes the average person through everything that I believe in a, a novice wine drinker should know. So it goes over, you know, what is wine? How is it made? There's a lot of misconceptions that people have. And if someone tells you, then, you know, you know, wine education and income were not proportionally linked. Mm-hmm. Um, contrary to my belief, you know, I just thought that at some point someone rains down from the heavens and tells you, but after speaking to enough really wealthy people that don't know anything, I was like, oh, you know, I need to teach people before they walk in the restaurant door so that they can actually have a better experience because it goes through, you know, the what is wine, how is wine made, the international varieties, which are the ones that you're going to see in the U.S. market, especially, mm-hmm. um, and what they taste like, how to taste wine. There's like a whole process. It's not hard, but it's just somebody has to tell you how to pick up the different aromas in wine. There's a whole section on that, right? And then wow. the second half of the course takes you through the different countries of importance and the grapes that we already talked about, but in context of place and how they're different, you know, cause it's essentially, it's like a cheat code. Like if you take, if you have a wine and you know, if it's from a particular place, I'm going to know what it's going to taste like before I taste it. And that's the whole point, wow. right? That's, that's really what it is because based on the area it's from, I know what the climate is like, there's all these different things and it's very simple and it's not that hard. Um, but most people don't know. And, um, and then the end is, is food and wine pairing. And I have three different kind of levels um, that you can go to, to explore food and wine pairing. Cause it's not like some one wine goes with one dish. There's millions of options. And I explain kind of like how the different sort of theories that you can use mm-hmm. um, to justify it and, and how it's easy to have fun. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's not a sommelier course. I've had, you know, 300 sommeliers take it uh, for accuracy to see mm-hmm. what they think or feedback. But ultimately it's designed for a server you know, who just wants to learn a little bit more to help their pocketbook, right? Mm-hmm, it's, mm-hmm. I, you know, we've had um, several restaurant groups and hotels like purchase packages for all of their staff, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it takes three to five hours um, if you did it all in one sitting, but you can log in and out and there's 16 sections. So some people will do like one short section a day. Um, the videos, I think there's almost exactly three hours of running time, like exactly if you put the videos back to back. But, you know, it's very accessible. That's, that's um, the, the, I want people to take it because I really want them to, I want to get those texts and those emails saying like, oh, I tried this new wine at the store because you said so, or I got this job because, you know, of the knowledge that I learned from you. Because the bridge between average consumer, which most people don't know anything and not being self-conscious about that. Right. um, And getting them to a level where they can, 
learn, um, it's very intimidating, that space in between. And so it's good for um, any beginner, really. And actually, some say that they learn new things, too, because it's just good refreshers. It's like, yeah. It's like an onion. So even if you've read a wine book cover, you know, front to back, um, you haven't absorbed all of that the first time. I mean, I don't care if you're, um, you know, just like a photographic memory, uh, (laughs) but even if you do, you still won't absorb all of it and get it. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's different to have somebody like me explain it to you simply, not make you feel bad about not, not, not knowing. And my, my hope is just to create confidence. And, you know, from the reviews I've gotten, like, I know that that's what's created, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and I want people to be able to make better choices because sometimes the more expensive choice isn't the right choice. I'm, I'm not here to push a particular wine brand. I'm just here to give people the knowledge to, to buy better for them. Yeah, that's great. Because I've found too, like, I'll have a more expensive wine and realize I actually like the $20 bottle better, you know, in some instances, you know, because I don't know, but there have been instances where the cheaper bottle tastes much better to me, you know, but there's so many I don't know about. So I look forward to learning that. So with that in mind, let people know where they can find you and connect with you. I will include all of this information in the show notes for those listening, but I'll let Christy go through kind of some of the high points of how to connect or even be a part of her course. Yeah. On Instagram, it's Christy Norman underscore Psalm. Um, online wine course is, um, is the Instagram for that. And then the website is theonlinewinecourse.com. And I actually have um, a promo code for you guys too for 50% off. Awesome. Interrupting balance. Um, And you can use that at checkout for 50% off. And um, yeah, my, the, the, the reason um, that I wanted to make this really was because wine education, even those basic classes are like four to $700 and mine with the discount code is going to be 75 bucks for you to take. Wow. Yeah. And like, that's, and you know, it's the cost of two books and it's honestly, I just needed, I wish I could give it away for free, you know, a hundred percent of the time. Um, I wish I could do that, but you need some skin in the game to finish it. Right. Because it is a lot of work. So just know if you're thinking about taking this, like, you know, you should print all the worksheets because the, the, the worksheet quiz or worksheets are the answers to the quizzes and you need it. Right. Um, but disrupting balance, the online wine course.com. You can check it out. Um, awesome. I'm, I've, I've got to do my sign up too, because I need to take the course <laughs> for myself. Oh, so thanks so much. This is great. So um, again, like I mentioned, I'll have all of this in the show notes. So folks, don't worry if you didn't catch it or if you're driving or you're busy and you can't write these things down, check the show notes either um, on the uh, platform, my actual hosting platform or on Apple Podcasts, Google, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. You'll get it all there once you get the moment to sit down and write this stuff down. I am Christy Norman, and I am disrupting balance by making wine knowledge accessible for everyone. Thank you for listening to the Disrupting Balance podcast with Hanifa Barnes. Hey, make sure you subscribe, rate, and review. And if you're not following me yet, find me at Disrupting Balance on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, and LinkedIn. And guess what? I'm on Clubhouse at Hanifa Barnes ESQ. And if you want free tools or any and all things Disrupting Balance, check out the website, 
www.disruptingbalance.com. Talk soon.